Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hey there, welcome back to Halley History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Uh, Mr. D here again, shocker. Uh, keeping going through our shorts, and uh, this is going to be the final installment of the series on the Cold War, the third part. Um, today we're going to deal largely with the Vietnam War, which, which will take up most of our time. Uh, the ending of that war, the Watergate scandal, the, the Ford and the Carter administrations, and kind of the end of the Cold War. So buckle up and get ready for this ride. So, you know, we left off with Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis being resolved, but around the same time, towards the end of the... Um, the end of the days for the Kennedy administration is, is Kennedy will be assassinated in 1963 in November. Um, a problem begins to arise, and I really shouldn't say it began to arise because it's kind of been there since the 50s. And that has to deal with a section of Southeast Asia where much of this story took place, even you know, kind of near Korea, China, um, that whole that whole region of the world. In 1949, um, you know, China becomes communist, becomes an enemy of the United States, kind of in ideology, and is trying to spread their their ideology of communism throughout Asia. Now, again, we talked about how even though China's communist and so is the Soviet Union, they don't always see eye to eye, so there's some division there. And Vietnam, for a long time, was a French colony. And the United States, and after World War II, it, it kind of attempts to become so again. But the problem is World War II, and even the First World War, you can make the case, uh, inspires this idea of self-determination, that people have the right to determine how they want to be ruled and who they want to be ruled by. Um... And this is important because this is what Vietnam is kind of going to go through in the 1950s. In the Vietnam War, I will make the case, certainly, and I think a lot of other people will too, it was the most uh, divisive time or dividing time for the American people since the Civil War. Um, Americans really disagreed over Vietnam, and in large part because the Vietnam, in my opinion, is kind of a tragic story of uh, just sort of the ball getting rolling and, you know, picking up a lot of steam and not being able to stop that. So Vietnam was a French colony for, for a long time. And after World War II, France tries to reassert its authority over Vietnam. The problem is a lot of Vietnamese people are not really in the mood for that. They're feeling this wave of self-determination. Now, if you look at this from a perspective of like, what does the United States believe in? Um, you have a, a, a group of people here, similar to like the Cubans in the Spanish-American War, trying to overthrow the Spanish, and we help the Cubans. In this case, we're allies with the French, which complicates things, so we are not going to be helping the Vietnamese. We are going to be helping the French. And also, you know, in large part because some of these these quote-unquote rebels, these Vietnamese rebels, um, possibly the United States thinks could be showing communist uh, uh, leanings and have support from China. So we're going to be supporting the French in all this. And uh, Truman and Eisenhower, you know, believe in this thing called the domino theory, right? If one nation falls to to communism in Asia, others will follow. So we have to stop the spread. And we saw, you know, Truman and Eisenhower do this in Korea. So this looks like another Korea to to the uh, the Kennedy administration because they're kind of, you know, um, and Eisenhower too, because they're kind of the early presidents during this whole fiasco with Vietnam. 
France will fail on this quest, and the nation is divided into a north and south, just like Korea. Now, just like Korea, you also have the north being communist supported by the Soviets and the Chinese, and the south being democratic, um, democratic in air quotes, I will go to later, um, and, and, you know, capitalist. So that's kind of how the lines are drawn. Uh, if you're looking through the slides in the notes for eighth grade, you know, you'll see the slide with the, the North Vietnamese with the South Vietnamese and their leaders. Um, Ho Chi Minh will be the leader until 1969 of North Vietnam. He is the very, very famous leader. He'll have, uh, you know, a city renamed after him after the war. And he is backed by the communists, the Soviets and the Chinese. Okay. And the South Vietnamese leader is Nguyen Dinh Diem. I'll do my best to pronounce that. But the Diem government, Diem is kind of a dictator. Um, I shouldn't even say kind of. He is a dictator. And he's backed by the U.S. because he's a leader of the South. Now, Diem, um, not such a great dude in his own right. Many people argue, kind of agree with that analysis. Uh, will you know, restrict free speech, do all sorts of kind of nasty things, anti-American ideal things. But yet the U.S. supporting him because he's the counterweight to the communist North. So again, this international stage of, you know, good versus evil, uh, communism evil versus... Um, Capitalist democracy, good guys. I'm not saying that's my belief. I'm just saying that that you know that's how Americans see it. This kind of doesn't look so great for the United States. Helping the North Vietnamese will be a group called the Viet Cong, and they mostly reside in a lot of them reside in South Vietnam. And these are guerrilla fighters who support the North that may be living in South Vietnam, and uh, they'll be ones largely using the guerrilla warfare, hit and run tactics, and make it so hard for the United States. So the the Vietnam War proper, I guess you could argue, um, the the actual outbreak of violence and the U.S. sending large amounts of troops there spans three presidencies: the Kennedy presidency, the Johnson Lyndon B. Johnson presidency, and the Richard Nixon presidency. So it, it spans quite a bit of time, and you can even make the case we're really moving into the Ford presidency there too as well. So it, it spans a grand total of kind of three to four presidents. In Vietnam, the United States will continue to supply the South Vietnamese um, while the Soviets and the Chinese supply the North. So what you have here is a classic look. We're both trying to stay out of this whole thing, but we're going to supply people and kind of see who wins. Um, we don't want to fight each other, but it's okay if they're little, you know, little brothers do, I guess. The United States still believes in containment this time. And I will tell you this, the Vietnam War trashes the idea of containment um, and changes U.S. policy in the Cold War. So what you have here is JFK sending thousands of troops to Vietnam, just supposed to train the South Vietnamese and help out. They will occasionally go on combat missions. It won't be until um, after that Kennedy's assassination in 63 that in 1964 we get our moment that's kind of the spark for this. North Vietnamese torpedoes in the Gulf of Tonkin will apparently strike the USS Maddox, which is a destroyer. Now, we're very unsure of this event today, if, if anything struck the Maddox at all, and returned fire, if there was some kind of exchange. Um, we're fairly certain that it was kind of blown out of proportion, almost similar to the USS Maine in the Spanish-American War. Nevertheless, President Lyndon Baines Johnson will ask Congress to pass the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. This is very controversial because what the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution will do is it gives the president and the executive branch the power to use all necessary military force in China. Now, here's the issue. So you got the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which is the actual incident with the USS Maddox in the ship, and the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which Congress agrees to, passes the, po- the war powers from Congress to the presidency. So you're almost eliminating any kind of check or balance on power. So much of the Vietnam conflict is waged by the executive branch and many decisions by the executive branch. Congress will have less oversight because of this uh, resolution. Later on, we get the War Powers Act, which requires the executive branch to notify um, Congress and the legislative branch as a whole, but 
not so in this case. This is before the War Powers Act. This will prompt the War Powers Act to be passed later. So Gulf Tonkin Resolution gives the presidency kind of full power to operate in Vietnam, which is going to lead to some pretty, you know, interesting stuff here because we're eliminating that, that check and balance of power. Okay. So Vietnam is going to escalate under the Johnson administration. He'll send more than uh, half a million troops by 1968, and the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese are going to be using guerrilla warfare tactics. They can't really stand up to the U.S. military, but what they're going to do is they're going to make it so tough for the U.S. military to function in South Vietnam. Now, here's the problem for in a military sense. Uh, the early strategy for the, the Americans in this war will be something called search and destroy, find the enemy and destroy them. And essentially, the U.S. will try to win this war by you know, body count, and they'll publish body counts in the paper to show how well the U.S. military is doing. Now, by the end of this war, many more North Vietnamese will die than than um, American troops, if you want to use a scoreboard. But as we know, wars aren't fought on scoreboards of casualties. They're fought in achieving objectives. You know, in World War II, what was the objective? Get to Berlin, end the war in Europe, and get to Tokyo, and make, you know, make both sides surrender. You're just trying to contain the spread of communism in Vietnam. We're not launching these big offensives to, you know, take over North Vietnam and unite. It's like Korea, right? We're fighting a defensive war. There's no clear real objective. And you're playing by, um, you know, rules of war where you're not trying to launch an offensive war. You don't want to look bad to the rest of the world, that sort of thing. So the military's like, well, what kind of strategy do I go with here? You know, um, many of the men who will go fight in Vietnam are drafted. They're not professional soldiers. And, and you know, we... T- the Vietnam War will prompt the United States to have a professional army after this. If we're going to be getting involved across the world, maybe we should have a professional army. So Vietnam is also very, very transformative for the military, too. And we're going to have this theme in Vietnam where the government and the American public are going to um, have a dis- have an honesty gap, where the American people, sh- you know, when the war first starts, are a little more in support of it um, then they will be by the end. I shouldn't say a little more. They're a lot more in support of it by the, than they will be by the end of the war. And in large part because it's going to be revealed that the government will be saying one thing and the reality is actually another. Um, this will really, really create a large amount of trust that drops off an American's trust in government, you know, even leading to this day. So the Vietnam War is very, very influential for that. In 1968 is kind of the turning point for the American public in the Vietnam War and really a turning point for the whole war. Lyndon Baines Johnson is still president. In 1968, the North Vietnamese launch, along with the VC, the Tet Offensive in 1968. Now, the U.S. government had been telling the American people for a while now that the war is drawing to an end. They're almost done. They don't have much left. It's, it's almost over. We promise you this. And, uh, you know, search and destroy is working. And the problem is with that whole search and destroy idea is you have to break an enemy's will to fight. And this enemy was not losing its will to fight. And so they launched this massive offensive called the Tet Offensive. Now, this looks strange to the American people. Wait a second. You're telling me the war is almost over, yet they launched this huge offensive, and the U.S. media is televising this whole war, much unlike Korea, World War II. Um, it's, it's the first televised war, really, where Americans are living with this in, the, in, their, in their living rooms. And uh, in a very famous broadcast, Walter Cronkite will come on the air and essentially say, you know... The war is mired in, in stalemate. Um, it doesn't look like there's an any easy way out after Tet Offensive. And, you know, people believe Walter Cronkite. He's the most trusted man in America uh, is kind of one of the, the, the terms used to describe him as a news anchor. And Lyndon Baines Johnson will be so shook by this that he said, will say, if, I've, if I lost Cronkite, I've lost the war. 
and I've lost the American public. Um, now, I will tell you this. The Tet Offensive, if you look at it on paper in a military sense, is a total disaster for the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. They lose 45,000 troops. They gain no ground. They um, Militarily, it's kind of a defeat. But the way the media portrays the Tet Offensive, and, and you know, in, in some cases kind of... Um, you know, showing that the U.S. government was kind of lying about where the status of the war was. So the U.S. media is right about that, but maybe they're a little bit wrong on the Tet Offensive as a whole. Uh, it was a U.S. victory defending, you know, a, all these positions because the North gains no ground. They lose a ton of troops and supplies. And, you know, but I think that the North understood that they didn't have to gain anything. They just had to show that, that look, we're in this for the long haul. And that would hurt U.S. morale in the army and as well at home. So the Tet Offensive is very important. You have to know that. It's kind of a turning point for the American public where the American public turns against the Johnson administration even more and turns against the war because much of Vietnam we're going to talk about in this episode deals with the home front and how the Vietnam at home is so different than Korea in World War II, World War I, any U.S. war really. And so at home, many Americans started to feel after the Tet Offensive and as a whole that, you know, this war is unpopular, um, we shouldn't be involved in our country's civil war. Uh, some of the bombing reports of North Vietnam and some of the casualties, civilian casualties, you know, trickle back into the United States. And, and a lot of Americans begin to turn against this war. Now, it, it is pretty split. Um, you know, there's there's numbers out there that show, you know, some, it's sometimes it's 60-40, 50-50. So it, it, it was a divisive time. Uh, hawks were seen as people who supported the war. Doves were people who were seen as against the war. Doves symbolizing peace. Hawk, you know, signifying a predatory bird. And a lot of, um, we'll see a lot of protests happen. Now, a lot of protests occur at the college level, younger Americans. That doesn't mean that younger Americans were the only ones against the war. There was plenty of people who were older who had, um, you know, sons and fighting uh, or, or husbands in some cases overseas in Vietnam. So I don't want you to think that college students are the only people who oppose the war. But they were, they are some of the most famous ones. Um, very, very interesting document. You can go read Tom Hayden's uh, SDS works. I uh, can give you kind of their perspective on the war in Vietnam and young Americans' view on America at that time. And some young men will choose to burn their draft cards and refuse to go fight um, publicly. And that's one of their forms of protest. Some will flee to Canada to avoid being drafted. And these unfair draft policies were really, you know, part of this this image of the Vietnam War being an unfair war for some Americans. Uh, if you were in college, you could take a, a deferment. And so, you know, college at that time was seen as something for the wealthy. So it was almost seen as this draft is the poor will go fight and the, the wealthy will remain in college and get a deferment. So, you know, and, and this unfair draft policy really even made the war unpopular, especially for younger people. And uh, in 1970, on May 4th, you actually had a large protest on the Kent State campus. And the National Guard, this will be in the Nixon presidency, the National Guard will actually fire into the crowd of protesters at Kent State, um, killing four. So, and, and to this day, and wounding others. Kent State will be seen to this day as a very, very tragic moment during the Vietnam War, and sort of exemplifying this, this tragic nature of Vietnam, where this thing got moving, and, and nobody arrested it or stopped it. Um, that's why I like to give a lot of credit to, to Kennedy and Truman in kind of the, uh, the Berlin Airlift, as well as uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, because you see in the Cold War, a lot of times these things just get ramped up, and it just takes someone to sort of slow them down. Or say, wait a minute, because once you get to the point in 1968 in the Tet Offensive, Vietnam, there's no turning back. And Johnson will say that a lot. So, and I also want to go back to Tet. Um, not sure if I mentioned that, you know, Johnson will not run for re-election after the Tet Offensive in 1968. He will 
he will say, you know, I'm not going to, because he technically can get another term because his first term only finished out Kennedy's presidency. Then he had his own term in the 64 election. He could run again in 68. Vietnam, you know, he decides not to. And, and Lyndon Baines Johnson was doing a lot of things in his great society programs with Medicare, Medicaid, all kinds of stuff, you know, and it was, people thought he would run again. He chooses not to. And so 1968 paves the way for Richard Nixon to win the presidency. But to kind of close it up at home, you know, even though young college students were are, are kind of, you know, the hippie culture, the counterculture, all that stuff, are seen as the primary movers of protest, and they certainly are. There's a lot, you know, there's veterans that come home and protest against the Vietnam War. There's, uh, and then, you know, so all sorts of people get involved in, in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I also want to point out that a lot of Americans sort of felt like, you know, I'm not in favor of this war, but I'm going to support my country type of thing. And so it really is tragic. And it, to, to really say Americans felt one way or the other about the Vietnam War is so complicated. So Nixon comes in 1968 as president, and this is going to kind of signal the ending phase of the Vietnam War. Now, Richard Nixon was very popular uh, as the vice president of Eisenhower. He barely lost the election to Kennedy in 60. And so with morale of U.S. forces and U.S. um citizens begin to sink, you know, Nixon wins the 60th election promising peace with honor, right? We're going to get out of this somehow, but, um, you know, we're going to do it in the right way. We're not going to quit. And by 1969, he did start to, as it appeared, de-escalate the war and bring troops home. The problem is secretly he was bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail that went through Cambodia that supplied the VC and, um, you know, he was doing other things to kind of escalate the war while appearing to de-escalate it. The plan was entirely secret. But eventually, in 69 and 70, it gets released in these things called the Pentagon Papers, where um, news outlets leak that the U.S. government is lying about, you know, de-escalating the war, and they're actually escalating it. And it shows that the, the government lied in past administrations about things about Vietnam. Like, the Johnson administration was saying, you know, the war is almost over, when, you know, it really wasn't. So the Pentagon Papers really even further that Americans' distrust in the Vietnam War, and, and more so the government. And Nixon's infuriated by this, and he kind of gets a little paranoid that people are out to get him, which will come back later. So I, I really want to stress that, you know, this is this is a time of, of growing distrust for the American people in the Vietnam War. This is not a time where they feel like they can trust their government. The days of, you know, blindly, not I shouldn't say blindly, but the days of super patriotism supporting the war effort like in World War II are gone. You know, this is a very different experience for the United States. Uh, it, Nixon wins his election in 1972 in a landslide. Huge, huge win. And he promises to keep ending the war. Um and we'll, we'll push for a peace agreement. And the strategy changes to Vietnamization. So we've gone from search and destroy to Vietnamization. Now we're going to train the South Vietnamese to fight in their own and resist the North. In this war as a whole, just to kind of talk about this before I move on to the Paris Peace Accords, over 1.2 million North Vietnamese will die. And just over 558,000 Americans will die and 220,000 South Vietnamese. Now, these numbers, you know, we're never going to really be sure how many died just as any war, but they could be higher than that even. Uh, for the for the South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese, the American numbers were pretty pretty certain on. Now I want to talk about the Paris Peace Accords. Now, in 1973, representatives from all sides, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and uh, the United States, will agree to you know in meet in Paris and agree to withdraw all troops, all U.S. troops from Vietnam, and in return, the North Vietnamese will agree to return all U.S. prisoners of war. And we'll keep the nation split. The North will not invade the South. Now, the South immediately is like, whoa, 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 red flag here. They're going to come in as soon as you leave. The United States says, no, they won't, because 
um, the Nixon people will basically say, we're going to hit them hard if they do that. And they know we will. And there's some truth to that because they won't reinvade until something very important happens in 1974. So just like Korea, you know, it appears after the Paris Peace Accords that peace with honor is, you know, sustained. It, it, it looks like a decent deal. It looks like another Korea, um, you know, not attuned to the amount of casualties, money and time invested in, in Vietnam compared to Korea, uh, still viewed as a tragedy and all the loss of life. But at least to like the leaders of the United States and the American people, you know, at least it's divided. Right. At least there's a communist north and, and democratic south. The problem is, in 1974, you get the Watergate scandal. The Watergate scandal, like the Vietnam War and the Pentagon Papers, is a hallmark event in U.S. history because what happens here is you get extreme distrust in the U.S. government and its leaders uh, for decisions made by Richard Nixon and his administration. So what happened in the Watergate scandal? Well, when the Pentagon Papers leaked, and I'll have to come back to Vietnam after this, when the Pentagon Papers leaked, Nixon becomes nervous that people are out to get him. So going into the 1972 election, you know, he's telling his people, you know, you got to watch out for these Democrats. Um, they're out to get me. So, you know, there's no direct evidence that Nixon ordered this, but it's highly likely he could have, um, that he, that his people, his committee to reelect the president, uh, acronym CREEP, which is kind of funny, uh, we'll, we'll bug the Democratic headquarters of the Watergate Hotel, giving this this scandal its name, and uh, spy on them. So, you know, th- this is obviously highly illegal. You know, you're ordering a break-in and, you know, illegally wiretapping other people, your political enemies. So, when these people are caught and arrested, uh, Nixon tries to cover it up right away. He tries to cover it up, pays people hush money. He even uses the CIA to try to halt the FBI's investigation of it. And um, by the end of this, Nixon will have to resign from office because he'll be in re- impeached and removed. And really, the most uh, the most damning piece of evidence for Nixon were, was the fact that he had every conversation in the Oval Office taped because tape recorders have been installed, and a large section of the tape dealt with all this. And so, this uh, during the investigation of the Watergate scandal, Nixon's still in office. They're like, look, we want these tapes turned over. Uh, when when the investigation finds there's tapes, uh, Nixon refuses. He says that there's there's private stuff on there. It's executive privilege. You can't have the tapes. Supreme Court rules. You, you got to turn the tapes over. And that's when, you know, it looks like Nixon's done. He's either going to be impeached and then voted to be removed from office, or you know he could resign over this. He could just leave because he knows he'll be removed. Um, a large section of the tape, very controversial, is erased somehow that, that maybe we think could have had him ordering the break-in, right? Um, but Nixon in 1974 will resign from office, the only president to do so over this scandal, and um, really creating a lot of distrust for the American people and their government. So here we are. Watergate happens. Um, now we've got back to the Vietnam thing. The Nixon administration was severely committed to, to defending South Vietnam, President Gerald Ford will take over for Richard Nixon. Uh, U.S. troops have been withdrawn already. And now the North Vietnamese kind of like, hmm, well, Nixon's not there, and they're, they don't fear the Ford administration as much, and they don't think the Americans will come to defend South Vietnam. And so they reinvade in 1974, breaking the peace, uh, Paris Peace Accords. And eventually they will push so far into South Vietnam. 
that 1975, we will have the fall of Saigon, a very iconic moment uh, where, you know, people will be trying to get into the U.S. Embassy from South Vietnam, trying to be flown out on the helicopters, trying to escape the North Vietnamese tanks as they're rolling in. They're trying to evacuate the U.S. ambassador, other U.S. personnel. And Saigon will fall, officially uniting the country under communism as the North uh, take over the rest of the South and effectively ending the U.S. policy of containment as a successful policy during that time. So really what you have here is a very, very tragic moment um, where containment's totally discredited, and it really shakes America, um, you know, as a whole. I mean, it, it being, you know, divisive at home um, with all of the issues there, and as well as on the foreign policy stage, you know, they did not contain communism in Vietnam, so it was it was a complete and utter um, disappointment by the end with the fall of Saigon. So back to the Nixon administration, I do want to just talk about a couple things about his his kind of legacy here. Uh, Nixon was successful in doing a couple things in the Cold War. Number one was the SALT agreement with this, this uh, Soviet Union, the Strategic Armed Limitation Treaties, that reduced the number of nuclear weapons that both countries had. So, you know, the Nixon policies we know as detente. You know, let's cool off relations with the Soviet Union as best we can. He'll also open trade and relations uh, with China. And this is huge because... You know, China and the and the Soviets um, didn't always see eye to eye on things in matters of communism. So by the U.S. opening trade with you know with with the Chinese, you're a you're cooling things off, and b you know you're you're opening a free trade agreement, and c you're kind of terrifying the Soviets a little bit. So Nixon does have more legacy than just the Watergate scandal and the the. Um, the Pentagon Papers. So that brings in Gerald Ford. And I'm not going to do the Ford and Carter administration's justice because this is largely about the Cold War. But Gerald Ford comes and pardons Nixon, which infuriated the American people. Although many historians think it was the right decision to kind of, you know, cool things off for the country and just try to move forward. Because many people want Nixon, you know, charged with crimes and even arrested. Um, but Nick Ford pardons that, giving Nixon kind of a pass there. Um, if Ford will not be long in office, he will lose the 76 election largely because he pardoned Nixon to uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter will have a rough presidency. He'll preside over a tough economy, a lot of gas shortages, other challenges. The Iranian hostage crisis will be during his presidency. I encourage you to look that up. And eventually 1980 will come back to the Cold War because um, Ronald Reagan will take over as president, president in 1980, beating Jimmy Carter. Reagan will promise, you know, to do his classic, the Republican things of laissez-faire, lower taxes, smaller government, deregulate business. And he'll really focus on the Soviet Union as well. Um, you know, many people who are conservative in their background, Republicans like to talk about how Reagan wins the Cold War. That's totally a debatable thing, um, not taking sides, and that's just something that, you know, people do say. Uh, Reagan is extremely believes in extremely strong military measures. He'll spend almost two trillion during his eight years as president to get there. It's a lot of money in the military. His strategy is this kind of the Reagan administration. We're going to outspend the Soviets. Our economy can take that outspending. We can bear that burden. It may raise debt, but the Soviet economy can't take that as much. Their their spending and their budgets can't you know withstand the same amount of spending that we can, and so that'll make things harder on the Soviets. So the the competition will almost ramp up again in the 80s a little bit. And, um, you know, some of the things that Reagan will say will also, on, on the world stage, will really take fire at the Soviets. He's got a very strong rhetoric. Um, he'll call them the evil empire, right? Kind of even, you know, uh, playing up Star Wars a little bit there with some of the imagery. On the other hand, he'll also meet with Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union at that time. And... 
they'll actually kind of become friends. Gorbachev actually attends uh, Reagan's funeral, and the two actually become pretty close over their, their lifetime. And the meeting of these two is kind of, the frequent meetings, I should point out, are seen as kind of a de-escalation, continuing Nixon's detente a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, during the Reagan administration, the, the, the Soviet economy will not go through some of its, its best years. And uh, Gorbachev will make some decisions that will lead to the end of the Cold War as well. And some of those decisions are policies that he enacts, Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, he will implement two policies, glasnost and perestroika. These translate to openness and restructuring. Gorbachev really, in a genuine sense, um, wanted to bring more openness, more kind of freedom of speech. You know, end, end the days of like the Stalin stuff, right? The secret police, the KGB. He wanted to end this stuff during his administration, his time in the Soviet Union. And as a result, people started to say what they really felt about um, the Soviet government. And, you know, the, the, its own self-determination sort of peaks up there. And some of these Soviet satellite states that are not Russia, right, Estonia, Latvia, um, the Ukraine, places like that, they begin to declare their own independence, kind of leading to the fall of the Soviet Union and its breakup. So, you know, a variety of things really lead to the end of the, the Cold War. It's kind of an anticlimactic ending. Um, the Berlin Wall, you know, Reagan gives his famous speech in 1987, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, if you seek liberalization. And um, that symbol of communist oppression, you know, will fall between 1989 and 19, uh, 1989 and 1991. Um, you know, in 89, the mayor of East Berlin and other officials announced that you can move freely between the East and the West sectors of Berlin, which is something you couldn't do before, um, especially with the wall there and it being guarded. And so citizens flood it and it's, it's all over the news. People remember where they were, they were in the Berlin Wall fall, uh, fell, came down. And it really signaled the end of the Cold War. So, you know, you have Glasnost, Perestroika, you know, the coming down of the Berlin Wall, uh, the Soviet economy not doing so hot. And all of this mixes together. And then, like I said, those Soviet satellite states start declaring their independence from the Soviet Union. And then eventually a reform movement takes hold in Russia itself. And Gorbachev is removed from power. And really, the whole thing kind of just ends, you know, anticlimactically over the course of a couple of years. The Soviet Union breaks up. It becomes Russia again today. We have other countries in Eastern Europe become uh, separate countries. So really what you have here is is the ending of the Cold War uh, as a result of a mix of things, you know, and historians will argue what really ended the Cold War. You know, was it Reagan's economic spending policies? Was it Glasnost and Perestroika that Gorbachev put into place? Was it just, you know, time for this movement to end? You know, there's a million different reasons. I just want to name a couple for you. So that's it. That is the end of our Cold War series three-part. It's been an adventure. I know this episode was long, but I had a lot more to cover. I hope this episode helps you, um, you know, in your distance learning or review for the region exam or if you just enjoyed listening. But uh, thank you for listening to Holly History. We hope you enjoyed.